0: Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Actually, welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme
1: Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez and joined by my producer, Stephen Trader.
2: Wait, am I the third wheel here?
0: Steve, (laughs) you definitely are. Okay, (laughs) listeners, if you haven't figured it out by our unusual music that led us in and this intro, we are doing it super group style this week with all of the people who love the Supreme Court the most so that we can really dive in, dissect the term that ended last week, and just get into all of it.
2: It's a pleasure to be here with both of you guys. Love this.
1: I'm so excited. I know last last time we did this which was the first time we did this we were like likening ourselves to like the avengers and i, I just feel like super cool right now to
0: to be doing this mashup natalie again. i'm so glad you're bringing that energy because i was about to say i don't feel exciting enough to be a member of the avengers this year <laughs> but what i do feel excited about natalie you've put up with me on the mic with you on various episodes of the term you and steve have held down the fort a ton this season. And it's nice to have all three of us at one time together to really just outline what we learned from this whole, this whole endeavor. This term was very unusual and interesting.
1: I wouldn't say put up. I would say highly welcome to, to, to the mic about <laughs> <throughout laughs> this term. Um, but no, I agree with you. I, you know, I, I feel like when we started this last season, at the start of the term, um, you know, we we kind of had some strong ideas and thoughts about how the cases would be going and
0: and what we might expect from the court, and there were definitely some surprises along the way. Yeah, I actually want to have that be the first big thing we talk about together. It's been a few days since the end of the term, basically just enough time for us to reflect, not just on those individual cases, but what the term means as a whole, and. Uh, What it means is something a little surprising to me based on some of our analysis from our colleagues here at Law360. The end of this term did feature a highly divided court that issued key decisions split down party lines. In its last week, the court delivered three opinions that followed a 6-3 split. One was striking down two universities' affirmative action policies. We also saw the court block President Joe Biden's student loan debt relief plan And we saw a case where the First Amendment was interpreted to allow a website designer to refuse to offer services to a gay couple. We are going to talk about some of those divisive cases as we proceed in this episode, but I think it's particularly striking that those were actually outliers. The court largely defied expectations this term, and the six Republican-appointed justices used their numbers not to crush every liberal um, stance, but instead to find narrow rulings and consensus with their colleagues. We did get a series of narrow decisions. Uh, they brought unexpected lineups, and we even had a run of unanimous opinions this time around.
1: That's right. It did seem like almost more stable term, especially after some of the um, drama from last term, which I'm going to speak about later in this <laughs> this episode of ours. Um, but, you know, can you give us some examples, Amber, about what, what you saw?
0: Let's begin, actually, with a few stats. We had some real number crunching here at Law360, and I think some of this is pretty telling for sort of this broader narrative of what this term was really like. Let's look at the very divided rulings first. The court issued 18 rulings with either a 6-3 or a 5-4 result. That's compared to 28 rulings of those type last term. So less of those highly divided rulings. And the justices showed more often that they can find agreement on some issues. They ruled unanimously this term 25 times. That's compared to only 16 unanimous decisions last term. So, Natalie, your feeling about these two terms, if you compare them to one another being different, is really spot on. As for some examples, uh, there are times we saw some unusual lineups or at least lineups that weren't the conservatives versus the liberals, um, you know, just Crushing because the numbers are six to three if you just do it on partisan basis. So some key a key example was a Voting Rights Act case where a five four majority of the court held that Alabama's redistricting maps wrongly diluted the voting power of Black residents. And in Moore versus Harper, six justices rejected the controversial independent state legislature theory that would have restricted courts' power to review election laws. So those are areas where. I think some people had feared we would get one of those partisan lineups, and we, in fact, didn't. That opinion, the Moore versus Harper one, was written by Chief Justice John Roberts. He was joined by Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, along with the three Democratic appointed justices. So that's not a lineup you see every day. Similarly, on immigration, the court blocked litigation alleging U.S. immigration and customs enforcement wrongly prioritized the removal of non-citizens who pose a threat to national security And it narrowly read a statute that criminalizes the encouragement of unauthorized immigration. So a polarizing issue, immigration, but we saw lineups that were not completely partisan. And seven justices also came together to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act. That was against a challenge to provisions intended to protect Native American heritage by keeping Native children connected to their tribes during custody proceedings.
2: Well, you talked about the unanimous rulings, and I'm always interested to see those. And I I do feel like opening the opinions, uh, you know, on Thursdays or Fridays, whenever they came out, I was always a little bit surprised sometimes at some of those lineups. Was there a couple of moments that everyone really agreed that kind of jumped out at you?
0: Definitely. So just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some of these, but they've been sprinkled throughout the term. One was the justices unanimously reviving a Christian former mail carrier's religious discrimination suit against the Postal Service. In addition to that, when there was a really funny case about a whiskey-themed dog toy that the justices said was not entitled to First Amendment protections, that was a trademark fight with Jack Daniels. Side note, I loved talking about that case.
2: We did too. And I do remember both of those were big cases at the beginning of the term. And I think we expected to see a little bit more divide among the justices. So that is a surprise. Yeah.
0: We also had a couple more I think are pretty notable. They reached a full consensus that a Minnesota county couldn't keep the extra money it made after selling a condo it seized for more than the tax debt that the owner actually faced. So that was also unanimous. And the justices agreed to avoid breaking the internet. We had a whole special episode. It was our swan song from our departed colleague, Jimmy Hoover, who talked about a case around Section 230 that many had predicted could really change the rules around um, what content uh, platforms have to police and instead the justices upheld section 230 unanimously found that the victims of terrorism and their families didn't sufficiently establish that twitter and google aided and abetted attacks by the islamic state group so that was another sort of big case everyone was watching that was a surprise unanimous decision All nine justices also agreed on some other high-profile stuff. They agreed that federal district courts can hear constitutional challenges to the Federal Trade Commission and the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission, and that a patent must provide enough information to allow skilled people to replicate the full scope of the invention. That was a big dispute over antibody patents. So no, these were not unanimous rulings on small issues. They were pretty big and sweeping and yet had a full court majority. Now, why do you think we got some of that consensus? That's really the million-dollar question, and there's probably many different ways to look at that. But one thing from our reporting that I found really interesting, our senior appellate reporter Jess Crotch-Tangle talked with a Stanford law professor about that exact question. His name's Mark Lemley, and he noted that there really was a more nuanced approach taken by the justices this year. His position on it was that some of the justices in the conservative majority may have wanted to course correct from the previous term because there were rulings in that term that were quite divisive. There was gun control, abortion rights, environmental regulations, all such sweeping rulings that really did come down party lines there. And it left open a large critique about how the court was functioning and whether it was overly politicized. So according to this professor... There may have been enough of a public outcry and enough um, sort of pushback at the court just becoming partisan that the justices were extra mindful this time to try to reach consensus anytime they could.
1: So I think that's an interesting theory, and and I think maybe to some extent I do agree with that professor. You know, the chief justice for sure I think has the image of the court in mind a lot when he's thinking about negotiations and kind of compromises on opinions. I just don't know if I've seen justices Alito and Thomas particularly like seem, you know, to, to, to take that in as a factor. I, I think, you know, we actually spoke with um, Joan Buskupik earlier in this season and, and, you know, we, we, we kind of discussed that like from her take too like they, they particularly don't think public image of the court should be taken into account when they're making decisions.
0: Natalie, I think it's fair pushback that there are different ways to interpret how this term has panned out. And I certainly don't want our listeners to have the takeaway be that we think there's no partisanship on the court anymore. Don't worry about it, because that's definitely not what we're saying. In fact, I think Steve is going to lead us through a discussion of some of the cases where we saw the most partisan division. And it can't be understated that these were similar to last term, very big social issues in America that were tackled and did, in fact, break down on party lines. So even though I've just painted this narrative that we had more consensus this year and the numbers and the breakdowns in the cases do bear that out, that's not to say we're out of the woods in terms of, you know, push back against the court becoming more and more political.
2: No, Amber, you're right, though. I mean, it, it's nice to take a trip down memory lane looking back at the term, because I think at the end of the term, there are the biggest cases and there is the most divide there. So you're right. There was a lot of cases from the term that that did fall along interesting lines, and it's good to talk about those. I do want to circle back on a couple of the key decisions that we saw. I mean, last week on the term and pro se, we covered a bunch of the biggest opinions. We talked to guests about you know, what the majority actually decided, and we got into the impact a little bit. But, you know, we were jumping on Mike pretty quickly and just trying to get out there, like what the opinion said. And a lot of our reporters went on to speak to more attorneys and write analyses. And so I kind of wanted to circle back a little bit and just talk a little bit more about some of the impact from some of these big cases. So I thought we would start with affirmative action because I thought that that was probably out of all the blockbusters, I think that, that the the Harvard case was really the one that we had been watching from the get go.
0: That's a great place to start, Steve, because I can tell you in my personal life, I've had so many friends and family members come out of the woodwork and say to me, Amber, what does that one actually mean? Like, what are we going to see happen next? So it's still early days. It hasn't even been a week since the ruling. But I think that's the idea now on everyone's mind once everybody's had a chance to read it, digest just a little bit, and think about what it means practically. So tell us more.
2: Yeah, we had a couple of good analysis on that. We'll get to that in a second. But this, of course, was the 6-3 opinion handed down last Thursday, which essentially gutted affirmative action. The justices decided that the use of race-based admissions policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So our guest last week was senior Boston courts reporter Chris Volani, who talked us through some of the reasoning. And Chief Justice Roberts wrote that the current admissions policies were not narrowly tailored, so the universities had argued that the benefits that come with having a diverse campus as you're training the next generation of leaders, that's enough to keep affirmative action alive. But the chief wrote in his opinion that that's just too vague to survive judicial scrutiny. and affirmative action just also has to end at some point. I think the idea when it was kind of put in place twenty five years ago is that it would sunset at some point and we just reached that day last Thursday. So Chris kind of did talk to us a little bit about the impact of the decision. Um, He noted that California and Michigan are two states with laws that are already on the books that ban the use of race in the admissions process. And the number of Hispanic and African-American students has gone down at schools in both of those states. And race-neutral alternatives haven't really gotten them back to the level of diversity the schools say that they want. So we kind of gave that to us as just like a little snapshot of what we might expect from the Supreme Court's nationwide ruling. And, you know, schools certainly have to be more careful now about using race-neutral alternatives too. The chief's opinion cautioned universities against using any sort of proxy for race when making admissions decisions.
0: Steve, I think that's a really interesting point, right? Because I, the immediate gut reaction from many people was like, just use a proxy. Use Zip code, use socioeconomic status, use some other qualifier that maybe would still give you a diverse student body.
2: And I'm sure that they're going to try and work around that a little bit because we, this is another thing that the Chief Justice wrote is that there's nothing in the court's holding that prohibits schools from considering how race affected an applicant's life. And so this is after we jumped off the line with Chris, he went on to write this analysis and speak to a bunch of different attorneys who, you know, said we can really probably expect years of litigation exactly because of this sort of murky gray area. There's like this tiniest little crack in the door for things like admissions essays or little ways that schools might still try and boost their diversity numbers. But Then, of course, like litigious advocacy groups and individuals, they're paying super close attention to this, too. And, you know, they may be challenging these a lot more in court. So there's just almost certainly going to be follow up litigation to this.
0: Yeah. Anytime that there's a ruling where someone says, hey, you can't use any proxies for race, except you can still consider race. In how it impacts someone's life. That is inherently a bit confusing, drawing the line of where things are around those two statements. I think, naturally, all the lawyers out there listening are like, yep, we're going to have to figure out where that line is, and we're going to do that in court.
2: Right. And then the other the, the other place where this could also play out is in the workforce and employment area. And I, Amber, this is your your cup of tea here. But both Chris and our employment editor at large, Vin Grary, they talked to attorneys who said that, corporations are also going to be on very high alert because you know even though there are obviously long standing laws against using race as a basis for employment decisions but then there's these other things that are like diversity equity and inclusion initiatives affinity groups charitable giving companies have been leaning into that for a few years now and those are all going to be scrutinized and possibly challenged as well you know if diversity is not a compelling enough interest for academia then why would it be any different for some of these policies in the employment arena? That's what some of the attorneys told Vin and Chris last week.
0: I think that's going to be super interesting to follow to see if litigation flows in that direction. I think, you know, logic would dictate that it probably will. I think the other thing that's interesting, too, is that it may change the pipeline for the kinds of qualified applicants that are even applying to jobs. So we may see some long term downward pressure that way, too, if taking away affirmative action in fact, does nationwide lower the numbers of um, diverse candidates who make it into schools.
2: Right, exactly. And then speaking of lawsuits, we actually already have one. Um, on Monday, a group of nonprofits filed a complaint. With the U.S. Department of Education to end so-called legacy admissions at Harvard, they pointed out that nearly 70% of Harvard's donor-related and legacy applicants are white and that children of alumni and donors are both six and seven times more likely to get in, which is a significant disadvantage to applicants of color and runs afoul the Civil Rights Act. And the the group Lawyers for Civil Rights Boston, they filed the suit, and it's a Executive Director Ivan Espinosa-Madriel quoted directly from Chief Justice Roberts' affirmative action opinion in a statement on Monday saying that, quote, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it.
0: This is so interesting to me, Steve. I mean, I could talk about this forever, but uh, we obviously got this as a direct reaction to the affirmative action ruling. And I think there are some interesting questions about you know, the disparate impact that legacy admissions create and and how those can be reined in, if at all. I'm not sure how this will play out in the courts, but it's gonna be a fascinating tale to this to to see unfold.
2: Right, exactly. So uh, this is definitely a pressure cooker now and we'll see where that goes. But speaking of hot button discrimination issues and huge legal fallout, let's talk about the second big case that came down last week. This is the six-three majority finding on Friday. That a Colorado website designer had the right to review service to same-sex couples. And you had mentioned this one earlier, Amber, but this is a huge deal last week. The court's conservative supermajority ruled that a content created by a Christian graphic designer, Lori Smith, qualifies as speech that is protected by the First Amendment. That means Colorado cannot penalize her under its anti-discrimination law if she refuses to design a website for same-sex couples.
0: If this sounds really familiar to people, maybe not even from this term, this is essentially Masterpiece Cake Shop 2.0. We we saw this before in the area of a wedding cake for a gay wedding. And that case sort of ended in a bit of a procedural whimper. And here we are addressing it head on and got the result that I think many people were expecting, that it was going to be a straight down party lines ruling here with some really fiery dissent.
2: That's exactly what we got. And um, there's actually been a lot of interesting discussion you mentioned about the Harvard case. But people have been talking to me about this case and I've been reading about it a lot. Just because it's kind of an interesting set of facts. Smith sued Colorado in 2016 to block the state from any theoretical future enforcement of its anti-discrimination law. She had planned to deny service, so she just wanted to get some clarity on that. It's not clear whether Smith had actually been asked to create a website for a same sex event. She claims she was, but then there was recently some reporting by the New Republic, which has led to questions about whether that was like a, a made up thing or not. Colorado also had not brought any enforcement action against her either. So this is just a, like a weird set of facts. It's an unusual challenge that's. That's been talked about a lot. But the big takeaway is, you know, what attorneys say is that we can certainly expect this opinion to impact a lot of different people.
0: Yeah, we should maybe pause there just to say, I have had, again, my friends love talking to me in June. That's what happens, guys. Like It's like, who do I know that's a lawyer that maybe can explain this weird thing that's happening? And a lot of people have said to me, how can it be maybe based on a fake inquiry to that that website designer, how can that be okay? And how could that not just up in the whole case? And it's largely because the two sides have stipulated to the potential facts here and the potential impact. So the legal question is really not, you know, touched by whether or not there was a genuine inquiry. And it was highly theoretical from the
1: beginning. I mean, she never had our website anyway.
2: so. So we talked about this case on Friday with Holland and Hart partner, Chris Jackson, And Law 360 reporter Ann Cullen spoke with attorneys on Friday as well for an analysis that she wrote, and they all expressed a similar concern about the opinion in that it just doesn't have much in terms of guardrails around what forms of speech are protected by the First Amendment. And that just leaves a lot of leeway for companies to claim creative free speech protections and then refuse service. Or, again, in the employment realm, Even refuse employment to particular people.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting part of this, I think, because when you think of what is creative enough to qualify for First Amendment protection, most people's immediate thought is like, you write a book, you write an article, you make a movie. They're not necessarily thinking about a cake or even a hairstyle for an event. Can you refuse to? cut someone's hair before they go to a pride parade. Like, there's many things that could potentially fall in this bucket.
1: Yeah, I remember Chris asking specifically, like, you know, the hypothetically would providing chairs for an event that includes a gay marriage, would would that qualify?
2: Well, the the oral arguments were, it was all hypotheticals at the oral arguments. And really, the majority opinion didn't answer many of those. So just, just to back up for a second with the employment stuff, Three years ago, the court ruled in Bostock versus Clayton County that employers could not discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity. But the experts and attorneys that talked to Ann on Friday said that this decision really kind of pokes a lot of holes in that decision. And the majority opinion also cited numerous times a 2000 decision that the Boy Scouts of America held the constitutional right to fire a gay employee because it was an expressive association. And so that's just obviously precedent that they believe strongly. And that's what some attorneys noted. So to be frank about it, I mean, it's a hard case to talk about, but attorneys just saw a lot of momentum right now for discrimination cases moving forward because Friday's ruling was so broad and the logic could be used in so many different ways, not just against same-sex couples, but any protected group, really, in any different context, it doesn't take much to imagine, you know, a black couple or an interfaith couple who has refused service by a company claiming free speech. You know, this wasn't a religious freedom case. This was a, about protected creative expression. What that entails and how far that extends, the justices didn't say. One attorney told Ann that it was like the justices dropped a nuclear bomb on civil rights in this country. So, I know that's a real doomsday takeaway right now. Maybe we'll just move on from that one. But I, I, yeah, it was certainly interesting to to hear some of the analysis after the fact.
0: Yeah, I think this is obviously, you know, I, when we're putting together these shows, I think a lot about what are we going to remember five years from now, 10 years from now from any particular term? I think last year, the obvious answers were things like, Um, the decision around abortion access and decisions around gun rights. I think this year, it's probably going to be the two you just named, Steve. It's going to be affirmative action, and it's going to be whatever the massive impact this has on um, civil rights for everyone in our country.
2: Certainly. So the third and final case, I thought I'd just do three. I thought it would be nice to circle back to uh, an opinion that came down at the end of May. This is Sackett versus the Environmental Protection Agency. And this was the decision that reduced the government's authority to regulate wetlands under the Clean Water Act. So we recorded an episode, Amber and I, Amber, you and I recorded this one. We talked to Law360 senior environment reporter Juan Carlos Rodriguez, and he explained the ruling and the impact. And I guess this case, just for me and why I thought it was so interesting, it really kind of flew under the radar a little bit. And when we talked to Juan Carlos, though, he told us that he's been covering environment for a long time. This is probably one of the biggest environmental law opinions he's ever seen, and it would have huge practical impacts going forward. So I just thought we'd maybe circle back to this one quick.
0: Steve, I couldn't agree more. When j c was on with us, I was definitely struck by how adamant he was about this being a huge deal. And clearly, we talk about things around the environment a lot, but we don't see um as many rulings, perhaps, as as you would expect in these really hot button areas. So, just tell me what we'll remember like i said like 5 years from now what are we going to think about this one
2: so this case stems from the text of the clean water act and specifically an undefined term that's called waters of the united states and this is our favorite acronym wotus so those are waters that the federal government controls but the crux of this issue was wetlands that are adjacent to those waters And a 5-4 majority back in May read the Clean Water Act very tightly to include only those wetlands that are indistinguishable from more permanent bodies of water. And that's a huge deal when it comes to permits for landowners and project developers who can now fill in those spaces more easily without a permit. And this has been an issue for decades. Uh, Three past presidential administrations have tried to define waters of the United States. There's a lot of science that goes into this. And, you know, technically from a scientific perspective, all water is connected in some way. But obviously that butts up against the law and the scope of federal regulation, which was that was the the issue in this case. So this decision in Sackett really takes the guesswork, at least out of the wetlands definition. And, you know, As project and home building continues to develop, the ruling definitely makes it easier to understand when a permit is required. But certainly one takeaway is that less permits will be required. And that's a big deal in terms of environmental protection. So experts who had spoken with Juan Carlos back when he wrote his analysis they expected states to maybe step up and and regulate their own interstate waters more closely the biden administration is expected to release new wotus rules by september so there's just a lot still that's unsettled with this and a lot of rulemaking and stuff that's going to come down but just a major major opinion that really an upended a huge practice area of the law and um so i just think in wrapping up here you know for the supreme court season there are certainly many opinions with huge consequences but those are just a couple I wanted to highlight in terms of impact and a lot of far from settled issues where we could expect to see a lot more litigation.
1: Now, for our last segment today, um, I kind of wanted to turn to some of the major issues threads and storylines involving the court that were not (laughs) opinions and cases, um, because we did have some of those. Um, And one thread in particular that we've come back to over and over again this term, um, perhaps ad nauseum to some of our listeners, and I apologize if so, um, but I feel like we need to get back to it one more time, is the ethics questions that have just been frankly plaguing the court this entire term.
0: Natalie, we can't talk about this too much, in my opinion, because You know, there's there seem to be new reporting or new disclosures coming out all the time about uh, many things going on with the justices. There is keen public interest in this, and I think rightfully so. So let's kind of dig in to all that we learned this term.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. And, you know, looking back, you know, we actually kicked off the term season talking with Amy House, SCOTUS blog, and we talked about how, you know, the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan were sparring in public comments about questions regarding legitimacy of the court. And that's how like, this term started, right? We were talking about the legitimacy of the court a lot. We were just coming off lat- the term before where we had had the dobs leak um, and the court was facing like an all-time low approval rating. I don't think I'm wrong in saying that I think at least for the chief justice, there was kind of a hope that this would be a quieter term, you know, and we've spoke up top about how this was kind of a more, I would almost say like normal term that we saw a lot of unanimous opinions. We saw a lot more unusual lineups and kind of consensus. But I think in terms of drama, it just didn't happen.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Hope springs eternal that this would be more drama free, but... I mean, even that Dobbs leak from last term that you mentioned, the investigation into that did not result in an answer about who leaked the opinion. So we really got off to a bad foot even with that. Like we didn't resolve the problems of last year. And then it kind of seemed to snowball and double down on even more problems this year. Yeah.
1: Now, I will say, and and I know some might disagree with me, I don't think we had anything that rose to the level of the Dobbs leak this this term. Um, but we just had these, these continual like drips and drabs of drama all term long. In December, we, we got some New York Times reporting that published allegations that there had been a leak in the Hobby Lobby's decision. Um, and that just rolled into... April when we saw some ProPublica reporting that Justice Thomas was having these extravagant holidays with Republican billionaire Harlan Crowe, who also allegedly paid for his nephew's school tuition and that none of this was reported on financial disclosures. And I feel like this kind of opened up a new chapter for us where we've seen now a lot of um, reporting on like financial disclosures or rather not (laughs) non-financial disclosures of the justices. Um, In April, we also had some reporting that Justice Scorchidge had disclosed a property transaction uh, that he was a part of, but had not disclosed that involved the CEO of Greenberg Chowick, who's obviously the head of a major law firm that is often before the court. Then in June, we also saw Justice Alito uh, kind of pop up in the headlines for having taken an undisclosed private plane trip with hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer of Elliott Management. Um, and Singers had some subsidiaries who've had business before the court. So it's just been this kind of, as you said, snowball, uh, growing snowball of just drama over ethics, questions and financial disclosures.
0: And we even made it all the way to a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing about this. Um, not a lot has come from that, but we did have one. So what did you make of that, Natalie? Yeah,
1: they've you know, they talked a lot at that hearing about uh, pushes to have an ethics code for the justices who, as we've talked about before on the term, they are not bound by an ethics code the way a lot of lower court judges are. Um, I will say in March, separately, we, we did see some rules go into effect that require all federal judges, which includes the Supreme Court justices, to disclose gifts and paid for travel at commercial properties. So that's probably going to change a lot of um, the disclosures that we've seen reported on, um, or, or rather I should say the, the kind of... The the paid for expenses that we have seen reported on have for having not been disclosed. You know, as we record, though, we're still waiting for the financial disclosures for last year to drop for Justice Thomas and Alito, both of whom got extensions to file. And, you know, obviously we have no idea what will be in those um, or if it will kind of quell or fuel this debate. I have my guess, though, that it's likely to continue to fuel the calls for ethics reforms at the court. But like you said, we had that entire Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, and nothing's really come of that. That was um, that was back in May, and I'm not really expecting much to come of it. And I think a lot of a lot of experts aren't either.
0: That's definitely something we will continue to watch when we roll into a new term in October. Uh, but I don't want to leave us on an ethics note as our final thing we talk about this term. Natalie, I know you had a little bit more of the fun stuff. And one of those things was to talk a bit about our chattiest justice, which as a woman who's talked quite a bit on this podcast myself, I may be chattiest podcast host. So who joins me in this chatty Cathy c- territory?
1: Justice Jackson, who I will say I'm a little... Slightly surprised because it's her freshman year on the bench. Um, and, you know, often when you see a justice come on for the first year, they're kind of it takes them a little while, right, to to get their voice, to kind of make their mark. They, they, they tend to be a little more hesitant during oral arguments. Justice Jackson, however, after our data team kind of crunched the numbers, turned out to be the chattiest justice of the term.
0: I am in good company. I love it. Uh, chatty ladies unite.
1: Exactly. And just to to roll out some stats, she spoke a total of 75,632 words during the term, which averaged to her speaking just over 1,300 words in each of the 58 arguments she participated in. So those numbers handily best. Justice Sotomayor, who has often held the crown for speaking up the most, she used to kind of go back and forth with Justice Breyer, who is also known for being super chatty, and who Justice Jackson obviously took um, took the spot for. Um, but Sotomayor, uh, she averaged like about 811 words this this per argument this term. So Justice Jackson was like, well, <laughs> above and beyond. <laughs>
0: I I love that. Um I think there was also some number crunching that we did at Law 360 about how there was more time for people to be chatty this term. Can you tell us more about that? That's right. And I mean
1: I I think for folks who just remember us chatting earlier in this this term about, you know, regularly seeing 2-hour long arguments three-hour-long arguments, which happened in Moore v. Harper. Um,
2: Natalie, even at one point, I think the Harvard case, I think that was a five-hour oral argument. That's they were, right. They were crazy long this term, yeah.
1: That's right. So I, I don't want to, like, say that Justice Jackson was, like, the sole reason here, because she obviously wasn't, for um, basically never-before-seen lengths of uh, oral arguments this this term per our data team uh, who's been hard at work. Uh, This year's arguments average 92 minutes, uh, which, again, handily exceeds last year's 83 minutes and 2020 terms of 80 minutes. And er all three of those terms are kind of like above average for the history of the Supreme Court. Um, They've been just getting...
0: Yeah, I remember years ago as a reporter who would go occasionally, when I was lucky, to cover Supreme Court arguments and sit in the gallery... Often to be blocked by giant marble columns. Um, <laughs> but I always sort of accounted for being there about an hour. I mean, that was yeah. the average. It was like you're in, you're out. It's an hour. Yeah. An it, hour it's crazy 90
1: minutes this. at the most used to be, yep. you know, the the really like lengthy cutoff for, for arguments. But as we've seen, the justice oh, look, the justices have a new format where they're both doing the rotation that they did during the pandemic and yep. also having the free-for-all afterwards and it's just giving folks uh, more time to chat and and justice Jackson I think you know we've we've seen her kind of take advantage just going back to justice Jackson we've seen her kind of take advantage of that format in 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 both both ways um you know she has relatively lengthy questions during the time allotted to each justice she kind of goes through a series of questions that she has for each argument um and then during the free-for-all portion she's also not shy about jumping in with questions and kind of getting
0: into the fray. I have found this very interesting as a development over the last several years, but really culminating this year, because as journalists, we want them to talk as much as they want. Um, It gives us more insight into what they're thinking as the cases are progressing through arguments and we're waiting on those big decisions. Um, But Natalie, Steve, were you guys at all surprised by any of this? Did it seem like we're just continuing that curve toward talking more and more?
2: One thing I noticed from this term is that I mean we hear from Justice Thomas all the time now. I mean that yeah. that's a trend that certainly hasn't ended even since we they were in COVID protocols and recording from home. So we hear from him a lot. He alone that,
0: has added hours of runtime because he used yeah, to sure. never say a word.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's he's justice still the least <laughs> talkative justice. He's
0: still, for the record, the least talkative justice, he's
1: but still he's himself. no longer. He's no longer the silence justice. <laughs> That's
2: he, right. He's a he's a man who appreciates a lunch break. Um, no, I think, Natalie, you hit it right on the head, though. I was always surprised to hear when, the, when they do circle back and the chief justice gives everybody one final opportunity to ask a question at the end. And I feel like I always heard Justice Jackson jump in. You don't hear that a lot from Kavanaugh as much or Gorsuch as much. Coney Barrett jumps in there a few times, but I feel like Justice Jackson always had like one last question to close it out. So I, I did notice that trend, and I did think it was really interesting to hear her. I heard from her a lot, which was you know pleasant surprise.
0: I think that's also nice for us as people who are really watching the court and trying to build an impression of. What exactly is Jackson like as a justice? We knew her as a jurist when she had lower court appointments, but this is our first big look at what is she like on the bench? And so, Natalie, I'm curious if you have any other takeaways about what we've learned about her this year.
1: Yeah, you know, I will say this. I wasn't completely surprised by her stats, um, in part because just the first week of the term, she came out like right off the gate jumping into the Voting Rights Act case with an impassioned and fairly lengthy like originalist case that maps don't need to be race blind. Um, And she was also very vocal in the affirmative action arguments that were also early in the term. You know, I think she's one thing we've talked about um, with Justice Jackson is that she she does think about her fellow justices kind of leanings towards like textualism and towards uh, originalism perhaps. And she weaves that into her like own, I don't want to say arguments, but her own comments during arguments. Um, Also like many freshman justices though, we did find justice Jackson, the majority often this term, um, particularly in the beginning of the opinion season, we were like, okay, when is her streak going to end? Because she was, um, she kept, voting with the majority and ultimately i think she was with the majority in 45 of the 55 cases per our data team um but when she dissented i also feel like she she really took the opportunity to make her thoughts known she actually penned six dissents which actually had our coming in third after justices alito and thomas for the most dissent opinions written this term in a labor case involving cement truckers who went on strike she 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 notably stood out as the lone dissenter um, and wrote a fairly like pointed opinion calling out the majority as misguided for basically siding with employers and, and for exposing unions to more litigation over certain strike tactics. Also, in her first opinion, which was which she penned for the majority and which was basically unanimous opinion, she decided to have this take Um, that delved into the history interpretation of a statue as part of her opinion that caused um, some of the justices to split off for that final part and i think it's really it was like really notable because like she could have cut that out right but she didn't you know she could have cut that out to have a completely unanimous opinion but she didn't and i think that does speak a little bit to her kind of like approach and her stance about, you know, what's important to her in in, in, in kind of making known her her thinking process for the his, the interpretation of a statute or her thinking process for how she came to a decision. Um, You know, I, I think she's shaken things up in some unexpected ways. You know, look, she's come on board. It's still six, three conservative liberal divide. She's not changing really usually the 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 division on a lot of these cases um but i think many watchers agree that she's kind of making a mark in her own way and we've seen her in some of those as as we talked about earlier in some of those kind of unlikely divisions and or not unexpected divisions so
0: it'll be interesting to see what she does in her sophomore year team we have covered so much in dissecting what this term meant I'm curious about everybody's sort of final thoughts on what their big takeaways are going to be as we move into our summer break. I think what I'm going to reflect on is the stream of follow on litigation we're expecting from all of the cases Steve mentioned and sort of went through with us. We're going to see so much coming out of that. It's going to keep all of our staff here at law three sixty very busy,
2: yeah, absolutely. i think I think my final takeaway and and what I appreciate you set up at the top, you know, I think we get so caught up in the last week and and focusing on because those are always the biggest opinions, but there was so many big ones. And when you start off the term and you're you're looking at the docket, and I mean, there was big copyright cases this term. There was the big voting rights cases. There was the Indian Child Welfare Act case. You know, there was there was just so many ones that, and of course we covered and they're huge decisions, you know, but kind of thinking back on some of those, I mean, I I think a lot of Law was upended and I, I, I think we we saw some some lineups that we didn't necessarily expect or some decisions go a, a way we didn't really expect. So I think that was my takeaway is just a little bit of a, a surprise at some of the way some of those cases like the voting rights case went. Um, and uh, yeah,'m I'm, I'm anxious to see I know they have a pretty full docket already and a lot of hot button issues on the on the docket for next term too. so we'll see we'll see what happens with those and where those come out.
1: Yes, Stephen, I agree. Actually, I, I feel like, you know, I, I, this might be lame to, to double down on, but I'm very excited to see how the kind of trends we've talked about with the alignments of the justices and, and the kind of different compromises we've seen and how that will play out next term as we see the justices take on Chevron deference, gun rights, and just a slew of other important issues.
0: Well, all that proves to me is that we all need to rest up over the summer because that will conclude season four of the term. But of course, we will be back covering the high court action at the end of the summer to set us up for a new term, which will kick off, of course, in October. Thank you so much, Steve and Natalie, for holding down the fort and doing such a good job explaining this to all of us. It's been great to join you today. Thanks, Amber.
2: Thanks, Amber. It's been been an absolute pleasure talking about the court with you, too.
0: I also want to remind our listeners that Pro Se will be back next week with a regular episode. And we have so many people to thank for today's special super team show, including our producers, Kelly Mercano, and our other producer, also on mic, Stephen Trader. And I'm just going to say everyone at Law360 contributed to this season and this episode in particular. Special shout out to our Senior appellate reporter, our DC team, our data team, but, but many, many reporters have written excellent coverage. And if there's anything that piques your interest and you want to go back and learn more about it, that's when you check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Music for our show comes from Slender Beats, Silent Partner, and Kelly Ricano. For more information on all this high court action, as I said, check out our website. Again, that's law360.com slash podcasts. And you can also find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for either The Term or Pro Se and Law360 and you'll find us. Thanks and see you next week.